that on the back table before you get out of here today, all right? Um, we're going to wrap up 2018 um, starting today. This is our last quarter of this year, which is just crazy um, to think about. Um, so we're going to wrap it up, and we're going to take this long, hard, uh, intense, intentional look um, at the person of Jesus Christ um, in the book of Mark. And I was thinking about this yesterday or the day before as I was kind of getting ready for all this, and uh, if, if uh, you took the, the four Gospels, the four uh, books that we have in the Bible that talk to us about who Jesus is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're trying to wrap your head around what each of those books is like, Matthew, and this is, just goes where my head, if you want to know where my head is on Thursday afternoon, I'm about to tell you. Matthew is like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Has anybody ever seen that, that movie? Okay. It's kind of like that where there's this really hard teaching that Jesus wants to wrap our minds around, and sometimes it just doesn't make any sense. I wish there was some cool treetop fighting in Matthew, but that doesn't happen, but it made me think about that. Luke would be like Saving Private Ryan, where it's the story of a strong Savior, um, that somebody has to come in and save us, and he wants these factual accounts. Luke's wanted to make sure that we had this uh, trust, uh, trustworthy, factual account of the battle that was fought um, and is fought for our souls in Jesus John would be Inception. Anybody see that movie Inception? It'll break your brain um, if you ever see that. Uh, but it, there's just, at the very end, that movie ends with this point where you're just stuck with, what do I believe? What do I believe to be true? What do I believe to be actually, factually happening throughout this story? And John is very much like that. He says, I've written this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, and so those are, and then if you get to Mark, Mark is like the entire Fast and Furious franchise. Okay, the, the gospel of Mark is throwing $500,000 cars out of the back of airplanes, right? Um, Mark is crazy. It is action-packed. Um, it's kind of uh, the, the daytime talk show, you know, of the, uh, the, uh, the gospels. Um, crazy stuff happens in here. And he moves from one intense action-packed scene to another one. There's really no editorial process for Mark. He just kind of goes bam, 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 and moves you quickly between these action points, really, um, of the story of Jesus. So we're going to be spending our time in this fast and furious look um, at the gospel of Mark and, and Christ and, and walking with Christ and experiencing Christ, you know, over these next several weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. If we could just pray for a second and ask the Lord to speak to us. God, we're going to open up the Bible today. Father, I'm trusting that you have spoken to me some, but also, God, that the Holy Spirit is here, and you're going to fill in all the blanks and the gaps and the things that I miss. And the things that I misspeak, Lord, you're going to be working. We're trusting you for that today, God. So right now, each of us in this room, we just ask you to speak to me. Would you have the, the boldness and the courage to say that this morning? Holy Spirit, if you've got something to say to me, I want to hear it. Speak to me today. So God, we ask you that you would do that. The Holy Spirit would let us see Jesus take off the blinders and let us really see him this morning, what it looks like to be with him, to follow him, Lord. God, I pray that we're able to keep up with the story, you know, as you unpack it for us here in Mark, and it's, it's fast-paced. I pray that we keep up with the Spirit um, and whatever it is you're doing in us. So speak to us now. In your name we pray, amen. Mark chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, says, Now after John, this is John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, so he gets arrested um, primarily for picking on Herod um, and his, his wife, um, and he gets arrested. 
Um, he's already proclaimed Jesus is the, the guy, he's the Messiah, um, and baptized Jesus. He gets arrested. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? What is the good news that God wants us to hear? Now, I actually think this is a really important question. Some of you are like, well, I've got some questions for God. I've got some stuff I need to pick his brain about. He's going to answer some questions for me. Well, God took the time to write a book and say, here's what I want you to know. So just reverse the equation a little bit here. Instead of us puny little beings trying to hold God accountable for what we think he owes us in terms of information and explaining our existence here, let's hear what he says to us, right? So he says, I have good news. That's what the word gospel is. The good news of the gospel. So Jesus comes and he's giving us God's message and he's telling us the good news of God. Are you ready? It's in red. So it means Jesus said it, <laughs> okay? Verse 15, and he is saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There you go. That's God's good news. That's what God wants you to hear. There's God's message for you wrapped up in one concise verse in verse 15. This is the first sermon that Jesus preaches, and it's the same first sermon that he preaches in Matthew. If you go back and read Matthew, and these books overlap quite a bit, you go back and you look at Matthew. It's the same first public sermon that he gives there. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says the very first thing he says is the time is fulfilled. So it's like, hey, it's time. Right? Nobody wore watches than we do. He's like, hey, guys, listen, it's time. The time is fulfilled. Well, what time is that? This is so amazing, and I wish I just had, I could do like an hour on this, on just this verse. Every promise, beginning with Adam in chapter 3 of Genesis, every promise that God has made to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and David all of the prophecies that the prophets had, the visions that they had, the time has come with Jesus when God will split history in half. The time is that Jesus is here. Jesus has come. This is like the whole thing. This really struck me as I was looking at this this week, and I really mean this a, a little facetiously, but I also mean to be in your face a little bit about this this morning. Some of us are so eager to move past this and to have God answer all the cosmic questions of the universe and God breaks into our reality and he says, listen, here's what I want you to know. The time has come. Jesus is here. Jesus has come and everything I've ever said to you for about 5,500 years of recorded human history in the Old Testament, it's time. All of the promises that I've made, it's here, and it's here in Jesus. This is like the whole thing. And you and I have this tendency to just move on to other things so quickly and not sort of revel in the fact that God celebrates here at the beginning, and we have the, the, the birth stories of Jesus and the other you know, gospels that we celebrate at Christmas time, obviously. And it's a big deal because God is like, listen, everything I said I'm going to do, I'm doing it now. I'm doing it in Jesus Christ. We're so quick, and we're going to, the story we'll look at today, there's other stuff to look at, man. We're going to look at demons and healings and God's work like in evangelism. Uh, we're going to look at all that stuff. 
as we go on today. And some of us are so quick to move on to these other things that God might have for us or that we're interested in that we miss the, the proclamation of God saying, this is the biggest deal. This is my good news for you. Jesus Christ is here. I can remember one time, Mindy and I were, were in Georgia. We lived in Georgia. And a good friend of ours, Duncan Locke, had a birthday. And they had a surprise party for him. I'm assuming it was Duncan's 40th, but I'm not sure. But I'm going to assume it was. And we went to his birthday party. And it was like the whole thing where you turn the lights out, and he's not supposed to know you're there, you know, and you jump out and yell surprise and all that stuff. And listen, i got to tell you something, man. I love Duncan. I love his family to this day. Uh, but i got to tell you, when I was there, I wasn't really there for Duncan. I was there for all the other stuff. I was there for, like, the party itself. I was there for my students. My teenagers were there. Most of our adult workers were there. We were going to have a good time just hanging out and, and making fun of people, you know, and being squirrely and, and just catching up with each other. Uh, my friends were there. The food was going to be amazing. We were going to play games. And you know what? I didn't talk to Duncan the entire night. Not once. I had a great time doing everything except celebrating Duncan. We can be so quick to move on into all the other stuff that God might have for us that we can miss. Jesus is here. This is what it's all about in this person of Jesus Christ. So he says, the time has come. The time is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Because I'll use that language, and you'll hear that language kind of thrown around in Christian circles and in our theology. What is it? There's a lot of bad theology around the kingdom of God. It's really being misused, I think, especially in the latter part of the 20th, 20th century, early part of this century. Here's what I would say, though. If I, if I was going to say, what is this kingdom of God? It's this. The same God who sent Jesus and the same God who did all the stuff in the book of Acts and the same God who moved in the true church throughout the last two millennia, 2,000 years, is working to give his kingdom to men now. That's the kingdom of God. He is moving in the hearts of people, and this same God, we're going to see Jesus do some crazy stuff today. The same God who did that stuff through Jesus, and the same God who does everything we see in the book of Acts, we're like, oh, I wish it would happen today. That same God who's doing that stuff is moving in the hearts of men to bring his reign and his rule to people today. That is the kingdom of God. We live in what I consider to be the now and the not yet. That there are aspects of following God, of God's reign and rule being true in my life, but I don't live in a place where that's perfect yet. I don't live in a place that's even perfect in my own heart. That I still struggle with the rule and the reign, the kingdom of God in me, right? That's part of our struggle that we find our place now. So we read the book of Matthew, we read the gospel of Matthew, and we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we read Jesus' description of a kingdom person and what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And we're like, yes, please, Lord, let that come, but my gosh, I don't know how to do that. I, I just have no idea how to live in that place. That's the tension that we find ourselves in now. The work of the kingdom where God is redeeming all things to himself, and he's doing it right now, and I'm living in that place, but I'm also living in this broken, fallen world that is so messed up. And I, if I'm honest, I sense the brokenness and the devastation in my own heart. 
and I wrestle and I struggle even with that. So that's it's the active rule and the reign of God in this world. And there's all kinds of theology we can start to get into here. But what I can tell you is, is that when Jesus came here, this is like a new dawn, guys. You need to understand that. God's the same today, yesterday, and forever, and I understand that, but he works in these epics in human history. And you have the Old Testament where the person of Jesus Christ was not here. And you need to just wrap your heads around that. That's just the way God did it. And here, in this text in Mark, the kingdom of God isn't like conceptually coming. It's here (laughs) in the person of Jesus Christ in the perfection of who he is. The reign and the rule of God is here in Jesus Christ, literally, physically represented in Christ. And he's establishing his reign, and he's doing it in this text, and I think he's still doing it now. And some of us really struggle with this, and we're like, yeah, but Joe, my world is so broken, and this world is so messed up. How can you possibly say that God's kingdom is being established now. Just like Jesus says to Pilate later on, you have to understand that it's a kingdom not like any other kingdom you've ever seen, and it's a kingdom not of this world. It impacts this world, and ultimately it will encompass this world completely and totally, but right now we live in the now and the not yet. That there are things that are true about the reign of Christ and things that are still happening and coming into reality as the the reign of Christ. So, It's incomplete as we see it come here in Jesus and it gets started here in the work of Jesus and it goes through the cross and the resurrection and the Holy Spirit coming and into our hearts and lives till he comes back. The rule and the reign of Jesus is being established. The kingdom of God is here in the person of Jesus Christ. So you're like, well, how is it at hand here? Like, you have 14 verses that lead up to this there's a lot that happens in those verses and then you have the entire old testament again 5500 maybe longer years of recorded human history and you're like well where was the kingdom of god then how was verse 15 any different than verse 14 how was it different than the first 30 years of jesus's life remember he didn't just pop up there wasn't a sonic boom and jesus showed up at 30 and started ministering to people he was born 30 years before before this So what's the difference between all that and what's happening now? How is this at hand? How is the kingdom of heaven at hand now through Jesus? So he says, listen, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's what we also need to wrap our heads around, man. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus didn't come to tell us about the gospel. He didn't come to display the gospel. He didn't come to make the gospel. Jesus is the good news that God has for us. What he does is an outpouring of who he is, but he is the gospel because of who he is. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news of God in bodily form. And I want you to just remember this, guys. Listen, the good news is is that Jesus, perfect God, came to live as a man, a perfect man. He is God with us. Why should God be with us? You realize that we can't even stand in the presence of God because he's so amazingly good and holy, and we're so not. But God figured out a way for his very person and presence to be present with us and us not die. 
Jesus is the gospel of God. He is the good news. He is God telling us, I'm going to make a way for you to get to me. I am the way that you can have a relationship with God. That's the good news. Jesus is the gospel. He's the gospel in bodily form. So when we use the word gospel, we could probably use it in a couple of ways, and we're going to mean it's the story of the work of Jesus. If I tell you the gospel right now, I'm telling you you're a sinner. That's the bad news. The good news is God knows that, and he knows that you're separate from God, and there's nothing you can do to get to God. You can't be good enough to get to him, nor bad enough to stay far away from him. He has come to get you. He has come to find you in the person of Jesus. He died for your sins, and if you believe in him, you can have eternal life with God, forgiven of your sins, and live with your creator God forever. Guys, that's good news. See, so that's the gospel, right? That's the story of Jesus Christ. And then there's this continuing work that he's doing in us, right? That's also part of the gospel. But really, the core of the good news, the story is, is that God is working on behalf of rebellious sinners. We're dead in our sins, and he's working on our behalf. You and I then take that gospel, right? We take that good news with us. We take his work in our souls and in our lives, and we take that out, and we give it out to other people, and, and the empowering work of God comes on us telling that story to people, and he can save people through that. I don't quite get all that. I just know this is how it works, that I tell you about Jesus. I talk to you about who he is. And it's not because I'm a great orator or a great speaker, but the Holy Spirit fills those words and he wakes up your dead soul and he calls you to a relationship with him. That is good news. Jesus is the gospel. And man, I think as I say this, and you can tell I'm super excited. I was really excited when I was getting ready. Gosh, man, this is amazing grace. This is amazing grace that we are talking about. So some of us would go, gosh, Sanders, I've heard this for my whole life. I'm, I'm blah, 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 gospel, Jesus, amen. Let's sing some songs, but give me something else. Is this still good news for you? No matter how many times you've heard it, no matter how many times you think you may have responded to this good news some way, some way or another, somehow or another, is it still good news? Here's what I want to tell you guys. Listen, this is only like amazing grace, good news to the sinner. And some of us have just gotten over ourselves a little too much. And we're not in awe of the fact that this holy God doesn't not just speak us out of existence, right? Or think us out of existence. <laughs> but that he died on a cross so that we can have an intimate family relationship with him. That's amazing grace. And we get over that, the gospel ceases to be amazing. This is amazing good news, but only to the sinner. So we're going to look at it today, and you have these people, you have a demoniac, a person possessed by demons. You have a woman who's got this fever. You have these simple fishermen who are out doing their thing, and Jesus comes to them. They're people without grace, and they look at Jesus, and they're like, wow, I need that. Here's, here's what I want to tell you, man. The one, the person who understands sin and the grip of sin on your soul, the devastation that it is wreaking in your soul, you're the person who looks at this story and says, oh my gosh, this is good news. 
this is good news for me that God didn't just sit on his throne and determine me to be guilty and do away with me, but that he came to pay the price for me, the penalty that I owed, so that I could have a relationship with him. Man, I don't ever want to get over it. I don't ever want to get over it. I don't want to move on to the Holy Spirit filling me with power and saving millions of people and la, 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 and everything I can ask God for on my grocery list that I've got for him. I don't ever want to get over I don't deserve any of it. None of it. It is amazing grace. So have you grown weary of the gospel? Have you just grown tired of it? You're ready to move on to something else. Tired and weary of following Jesus. Man, this morning, just be renewed and be reminded that we are in this with Jesus together. And he's making us into something that we could never be on our own. He is our breath, and with our breath, we worship him. Jesus is the gospel. C.S. Lewis kind of refocuses us, and I love this quote. It's mere Christianity. You should have your Bible and mere Christianity. I really think that should be pretty close to that, okay? C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, doing good, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on out of all that. Some of us are stuck there. Be good, do good, morals, virtues. Christianity moves us out of all that into something beyond that. One has a glimpse of a country where they don't talk about these things, except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full with that what we should call goodness, as a mirror is filled with light. But they don't call it goodness. They don't call it anything. They're not thinking of it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. Mark starts his gospel and says, Look, this is the good news. Jesus is the kingdom of God coming to men to reign and to rule in our hearts. You're so busy being distracted by the goodness that comes from following him that you're missing the source of it all. So we can look at church and we can look at doing well and we can look at family and we can look at joy, health, and happiness. We can look at worship on Sundays and church friends and seeing people and fellowshipping. Are you looking at the source of it all? Man, if we really went back, and I don't want to do it, but we should do it someday. If we really went back and just sang at least three of the songs that we just sang, and we sang them again, and we talked about, I want to focus my heart on the source of it all, I think it would radically change what we do on Sunday mornings. Radically change how we sing on Sunday mornings. We're so distracted. We're so busy looking at the busyness of life and the good things of life that we're ceasing to look at the source of it all. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Are you looking at the source of it all? And if you are, has your response to that been appropriate? So many times we have just inappropriate responses to the beauty and the worth and the majesty of Jesus. What is our proper response? We see Jesus, we see his 
greatness, who he is, what he's come to do, that he is the gospel of Jesus, God, he's the good news of God for us. He's the one thing God wants us to know. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? We're supposed to repent and believe. That's what he says. Repent and believe. What does it mean to repent? Here's what I would say, married together with what we talked about, I think, last week. We talked about worship. I would say to repent means to turn away from idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, I'm not an, an idolater. I don't have little figures and stuff like that. Whatever you set up as an object of affection because you believe it will give you satisfaction, joy, happiness, and meaning, that is your idol. Well, now you shouldn't be thinking about some little totem pole, tiki god, you know, whatever it is. You should start thinking about people's names, ideas, dreams, goals, destinations in life that you have put up as an object of your affection because you believe they will give you meaning, happiness, joy, and satisfaction. Those are your idols. To repent means I turn away from those things and I recognize that none of them can bring me the meaning, the joy, the satisfaction in life that I want apart from God. None of them can. So that is repentance, to turn away from those things and to turn to the satisfying, intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You repent you believe. What does it mean to believe? You trust in Jesus and what he has done and who he is. The Bible says you confess with your mouths that he is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So we're just going to stop here, man, and I want to challenge some people because, again, there's great people here. I love most of you. I don't know all of you. Those of you that I do know, I love most of you. Um, <laughs> just be honest, keeping it real, right? Here's what I want to say, man. There's a bunch of people in this room, and you've heard this story repeatedly. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the Christmas story. You've heard about Jesus. I just kind of want to stop right here, and I just want to say, have you repented and believed? So church rat, church rat kid, church rat teenager, I'm not asking you how long you've been in church. I'm not asking you why you're here this morning. I'm asking you, have you repented and believed? Dad and mom, I'm not asking you if you want good children and a good family. I'm asking you, have you repented and believed in who Jesus Christ is? That is the crux of it all, and that is the only proper response to this gospel message. It is the only proper response to that, that we would look at him and say, he is the way, he is the life, he is worth my breath worshiping him. Now here's what's super cool about this, right? You and I would assume that if I was talking to God and I was like, God, I need you to come speak to me. I need a message from you. It's been 400 years since God said anything to his Jewish people, Israel, over 400 years. So God, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. What do you have to say? You would think the first thing God would say would be, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rescue you from your worst pains. I'm gonna save you from your worst nightmares. I'm gonna keep you from ever having to hurt again. I I'm gonna keep you from ever having to go through anything difficult again. What's the very first thing he says to me? I got good news for you, ready? I'm not going to kill you today. I'm not going to wipe you out of existence today. Matter of fact, I want you to come live in my house, be my son and be my daughter. But God, I got, a lot, I got stuff I need you to do. The only proper response to the good news of God and Jesus Christ is repent 
and believe. And some of us as believers, as Christians, as Christ followers, we just kind of need to go back there. We just need to maybe start there again, not to call out to save me again, but to go back and say, I have set up things in my life to be idols, and I need to repent of them, and I need to turn toward you and remember that you are the source of it all. It really is that simple to repent and to believe and to follow Jesus. So that's his first message, and he moves from sermon number one to activity number one. Look at verse 16. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on a little further, he sees James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother. They were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with his hired servants, and went away to follow him. Part of Mark's focus, as you read the Gospel of Mark, part of what Mark wants us to walk away with is that we would see this authority of Jesus. And it starts here in how he calls these people, that there's an authority that he has when he calls these men, and he wants us to see that there's this, like, divine authority. This person who says, follow me, has a divine, God-given, supernatural authority when he says that to them, and I think that he says it to us. So he does. He comes and he says, follow me, right? Immediately, it said in, in the Gospel of Mark, he's going to use the word immediately 40 times. When I told you that Mark is the fast and the furious, I'm not exaggerating. Everything is like immediately, and he was pushed there, and stuff happened, and bloomed, explosions, and just, it's crazy. So he says immediately 40 times, eight times in chapter one. Just the first chapter, he says, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, just bam, bam, bam. He wants you to move quickly with what's going on. So, man, I just kind of got caught by that. And I wanted to stop and say, are you kind of in on this immediacy? And some of us just overthink everything. Some of us are too spontaneous. We need to chill a little bit. But some of us in our relationship with God, there's this immediacy thing where he's like, hey, get up, go. Get up and go talk to that person. Get up and give that person this. Get up and go call that person. Text that person. Do this, do that. And we're like, well, what if? What if they buy cigarettes with that money? And we miss it. We miss the moment. We talked about this before. Man, there needs to be a 10-second rule. You feel like the Holy Spirit's telling you to do something? Do it in 10 seconds or you're going to talk yourself out of it. Okay? There's an immediacy. A lot of times, I've really found this to be true. Experientially, I've kind of found this to be true that a lot of times when I feel like God's kind of telling me something or I'm not sure, I should probably just go ahead and do it. Right? What's the worst thing they're going to do? They're going to take my birthday away or something? Like, really? What's the worst thing they could possibly do? I'm just going to be obedient. Maybe I make a few mistakes along the way. He says to them, he says, come, go with me, follow me. We've got to get rid of this idea that you have to know a lot to follow Christ. We kind of got to get rid of that. I'm a big education guy. I totally believe in it. I think a lot of us are lazy in our thinking. We should know more. But you do not have to know a lot to follow Christ. He takes these really uneducated simpleton fishermen, and he's like, hey, follow me. And what do they do? Okay. <laughs> and they just drop their stuff, and they go with them, and they follow them. 
We've got to get rid of the idea that the whole point of Christianity is to know a lot about Christ. That is not the point. A famous thinker, philosopher, Marcus Borg said this. He said, you can believe all the right things and still be relatively unchanged. You can believe all the right things and still be relatively unchanged. Believing a set of claims to be true has very little transforming power. Are you following with him? Are you going with him? Are you walking with him? Are you getting to know him? Becoming like him, loving his ways, doing his works in every area of your life. He does not say to us, this is so important for us in the West. Jesus does not come at any point to anyone in his life and say to them, follow me and your wildest dreams will come true. Jesus is not Pedro. Some of you guys recognize the, the reference? He is not pay, he's not running for office in your heart and promising you everything in the world. Do you, do you understand that? I want you to really wrap your minds around this. He comes to them and he says, listen, don't follow me and all your wildest dreams will come true. Follow me to the cross and with our scars, you and I are going to fish for people. And through you, I'm going to catch some. That's the offer. Now, some of us are like, bro, I can't sell that to my neighbors. Jesus isn't asking you to sell Christianity to anybody. We have that, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We've kind of got that in our head that we have to sell all the great effects of Christianity and the fringe benefits of knowing God. No, 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 you just follow him. Just follow him. And he's going to make you a fisher of men. Your scars, his scars, and the bumps and the bruises and the mistakes and the pains of life, he's going to take all of it and use you to catch some people. That is the offer here. Jesus doesn't need us, but he is really glad to have us on his team. <laughs> he's really glad to have us on us. He's like the, the Cleveland Cavaliers. LeBron doesn't need them, right? The new Lakers, he doesn't need those guys. But he's glad to have him on the team. He needs a rebound every now and then. He didn't want to get it. He says, come to me and follow me with authority, verse 21. They go to Capernaum. Here we go. And immediately... <laughs> On the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue and begins to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching as one having authority. That word authority is there. It's going to be ten times in this gospel. Not like the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news around about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. It's this authority of Christ. He says, Follow me, and he has this authority verse 21 and 27 he says that man there's this voice of the lord and again i don't have time to get into it but the voice of the lord which i believe is absolutely still present and active in the world today we've already talked about it a little bit write this down and look it up amos chapter 4 verse 13 and psalm 29 5 through 9 i want you to look those up and see what they tell you about the voice of the lord uh, amos uh, 4 13 and psalm 29 5 and 9. 
here's what, I'm going to wrap this back into the authority of, of God in, in our lives. The, it's the voice of God and the word of God in Scripture and then how he is speaking, okay? There's this mysterious work of God that happens in our heart and our spirit where God is speaking into us and there's an authoritative voice that God is using in my life, maybe in my physical body at some point, where he is speaking and things are happening. I, I don't totally understand it. I just know that the creative work of my Savior is at work in me through the voice of God. Now the other way, now that one's a little kookier maybe and can go way crazy, and quite frankly, since the 1500s, crazy people have taken that and run with it to bad places, so we need to be careful there. Then we have Scripture, that's very clear. We have the Word of God recorded here for us that I think is the primary way that He speaks to us. We in the West have flipped it upside down. We want this crazy personal experience with God, and we've divorced it from Scripture. And we need to let those two things, at the very least, balance each other out. I think Scripture should rule over that. But God is speaking, and He's doing things. And it's authority. We see the voice of the Lord, the authority of God here, where He the gospel of God, right? That's God's proclamation. The gospel of God, Jesus Christ, kingdom of God, etc., etc. Repent and believe. He comes to these fishermen. He says, follow me. And they're like, okay. And they get up and they follow him. He tells his demon, and, and because we're nice and in church, he says, be quiet. But the word's a lot more forceful than that. He says, shut up. He looks at the demon. He says, you shut your mouth. Shut up and come out. There's authority here. It was an authority that terrified them. It says they were amazed two times, two different verses. He teaches from Scripture, and they're like, wow. Then he throws out a demon, and they're like, double wow. So they're amazed twice in these verses here, and that word amazed means slightly terrified. <laughs> so he just opens up the Old Testament, and he teaches them something, and just from that, they're like, Wow. If this is really what God's saying, that changes everything. That's kind of scary. Then he throws a demon out by the same kind of authority. They're like, wow, if this guy's throwing out demons, we should probably listen to what he says. And what he says is kind of scary. There's authority here, authority over demons. We're going to see it, authority over fever. We'll see that in a moment. The teaching that he does, chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, he's going to heal uh, lepers illnesses, men and people. You and I look at God and we're like, man, God, can you do something about this? Can you change this? Can you radically undo this? This is so messed up. They're so, so broken. God, can you do anything? It's too big for me. God looks at all of it. Just read chapter one and that's it. Don't read anymore. God looks at all of it. Jesus looks at every one of them and he goes, that's not that big a deal. You have any idea the authority that I have over that? you have any idea the power that I have over that? Let me speak a word. Let me do something. Let me touch that. Let me get involved in that, and I've got authority, and I'll take care of it. And so many of us in this room have lost the hope of the authority of Jesus Christ. We've just kind of walked away from it, and we're tired of praying about particular things. We're tired of the rule of sin in our lives, in our hearts, and the difficulty of overcoming things. And we're not calling on him like that. We're not believing on him like that. We're not submitting to him like that. Submission is not a popular idea. And especially, again, for those of us in the West, we are self-sufficient. We believe we can do it ourselves. 
And the last thing we want to do is to defer our position of authority to somebody else. But that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. Isn't that what Jesus did? That he deferred his position in order to come and to serve and to die for me and you? And then in James, James says, God resists the proud. Jesus has authority over all these things we see here, the biggest things that you think are undoable in your life, Jesus has authority over it, and that means he's got authority over your will and your desires, and we must submit to him. So this demon-possessed guy presents us with a couple of issues, maybe problems. First of all, for some of us, just the idea of demons, you're like, oh, this is so trapped in time and space and culture. You know, we know psychologically now he was probably schizophrenic, you know, and all that. We're going to make all these excuses for what Scripture says was a demon. So for some of us, this idea of demons is a big deal. And you've got the power of Christ. How do I understand that? What's actually happening here? Has he somehow passed that down through his church, the keys of the kingdom to uh, Peter, and then on through the rest of the church? How does that work in our lives today? For me, I mean, those are all intriguing questions, and I'd love to debate you about them if you'd like to. But for me, the biggest question is, is that this happened at church. <laughs> They're at the synagogue, so church is probably a bad word. They're like at the Jewish church, the Jewish place of worship. This demon-possessed guy is sitting in church. That presents a lot of conundrums for me as a pastor. It explains some things, maybe, over the years. <laughs> but it does present me with some problems, some issues. So I'm thinking, was this guy like a regular attender? Was he Bob the usher who, you know, welcomed people in on Sundays and helped them, you know, flatbread, matzo bread, donuts, whatever they had back then? Uh, if he was a regular, how could he go to synagogue and worship in the synagogue and hear the word of God and then leave possessed by an unclean spirit? How is this man remaining in bondage and leaving every Saturday under the torture of the enemy? This, this thought, I said, I said, does this thought make you shudder? What kind of a church service is so dead and powerless and empty that potentially demon-possessed people can hear the worship and the message and remain spiritually dead? I think it's happening today. It's happening in this place. There are some of you in this room, and you're like, forget this, man. Cowboys and, and the Texans play tonight. I'm going to take a nap and be ready for it. Let's get this over with. You're, you're in this room and heard these people sing their hearts out, and we sing our hearts and our souls out, and you're unmoved by it. You're hearing me tell you that God's got good news for you in the person of Jesus Christ, and you're thinking about religion and being baptized when you were a baby, and it's got nothing to do with it. How can we sit under the teaching of the Word and the worship of the Holy God and walk away unmoved and unchanged? What does that say about us and our church? The kingdom of heaven is at hand in the person of Jesus Christ. Not in any way to elevate me. I am his personal local rep for you. 
And I'm standing in his place this morning presenting the same things to you that he presented to these people back then. The only thing you should be concerned about is will we cry out, leave me alone, Jesus, like the demoniac did, or will we receive the gospel, repent and believe and follow him? Are you more in tune with these unclean spirits? Are you amazed and following Jesus and serving him and serving others like some of these other people are? And by that question, I mean some of us right now, you sense this tension in your soul. And if you're, you're like, dude, if Pastor Joe's right about this and Jesus really is the good message of God and he really is the king and he has authority over my life, that means I got to change. I have to submit. I have to repent. I have to believe. I have to follow him. I don't want to give this up. This thing is precious to me. I believe it will give me satisfaction, joy, hope, and meaning in life. It's my idol. And right now you're wrestling with him over something. Right now you're fighting with him about something. Will you be more in tune with the demoniac and the evil spirits who said, leave me alone, or will you be more in tune with the disciples, these people around him, and a woman that we'll see as they listen to, they're amazed by him, they follow him, and they serve other people? We need to ask this question. We need to kind of maybe stop and say, God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, what do you want me to gain or leave or pick up or do or hear or know? Who do I need to serve? What evil needs to be confronted in me this morning? So if you're not ready to jump in on the whole demon thing, maybe you can just start with there is evil, and I quite frankly have kind of given myself to it, and I need the Holy Spirit to confront that evil in my heart. He is the gospel. He has authority. Mark will tell us that he came to rescue us, and he looks at you this morning, and he says, follow me. You're like, man, I don't even know if this is credible. You jumped the shark here, Pastor Joe. Can we just move on? I'm frankly a little bit embarrassed that we're talking about demon stuff here. I, for one, am glad that it's here. There's a great preacher, Frad Credick. He said this. He said, not believing in demons has hardly eradicated evil in the world. Demons don't care whether you believe in them or not. We still have supernatural things that keep us from God. We still have this sense in our souls that we can't breathe and we're so overwhelmed that we might as well just give up. We still have this sense that something inside of me is to, out to destroy me. Whether or not we want to call it demonic doesn't change the fact that evil ones are working in our lives against us. And now listen, even potentially using us. Whether I believe or not isn't the issue. At the very least, we should be thankful that these stories are here, these demon stories, and we'll see more. That they're here because it means that Jesus heals people and transforms people. The people that we think are the farthest gone away, possessed by a demonic, unclean spirit, Jesus takes them and heals them and transforms them. Praise God, that means there's hope for me. I don't think I'm demon-possessed. Many wonders sometimes. I find it to be comforting because here was, here's what I would say, back to the voice and the authority of God. I would say that Jesus is speaking to your demons now. 
in the same way that he looked at those demons and he said, shut up and come out. I believe that Jesus is speaking to our demons now. So here we go. If you're not comfortable with de demon activity, I'll go metaphorical for you, okay? So if you want to go the metaphorical route and you're like, well, I've got a demon of depression, a demon of sadness, demon of fear, joylessness, self-lies about my lack of importance. I think Jesus is telling all those demons in your life, the metaphorical demons, and he's saying, shut up. That's not true. None of that is true. You don't have to listen to that. I think literally Jesus is speaking against demons today, not just symbolically and metaphorically, but literally. There are evil creatures that are doing Satan's bidding. They're doing his ugly work in our world. They're impressing us. They're deceiving us. And they are ultimately just killing us slowly. Death by a thousand cuts. They are killing us. And sometimes in a very spectacular way, Jesus is telling them to shut up and we need to remind ourselves and them that we belong to Jesus. What was that movie? The Lady War Room? Is that what it was called? And she walked around the house and prayed around her house. Remember that? Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, 400 plus years ago, 500 years ago, he saw demons around every corner. He was a very interesting guy. Had a lot of health problems. <clears throat> and as his health began to deteriorate, sometimes for years at a time, he would walk around his castle, his house, the place where he was actually sort of in house arrest, and he would, you could hear him outside the walls yelling, I am baptized. I am baptized. And it was his way to verbally do battle with these demons that he thought were kind of all around him attacking him, and a way to remind himself metaphorically, that's not true, that's not true. I have been baptized in Christ. I belong to Jesus. Jesus is speaking against our demons today. So Mark here, we're wrapping up. He is confronting us with this supernatural, powerful, authoritative Jesus. There's really no way to read these verses and to really read through Mark and come away with, Jesus is a nice guy who likes to have children on his lap and tell you to be nice people. You, you can't walk away from the gospel of Mark and think that's who Jesus is. He's confronting us with this supernatural powerful, authoritative Jesus who is saying to us, right now, you, follow me. And some of you are like, no, he's not saying, he's saying that to her, saying that to him. <laughs> he's not saying it to me. No, I think he's coming to this room this morning. He's like, right now, immediately, get up, right now, follow me, let's go. I got stuff to do. I got demons to cast out. I got sick people to heal. I got people to save. I got fish to catch. Let's go. And he means immediately, get up, go, follow him. Not think about it, contemplate it, peruse about it, pray about it. Let's go. The kingdom of God is here. I have work to do. Follow me. And Mark is like confronting us with this Jesus. He's kind of throwing him in our face in a lot of ways. It's a message and a picture of Jesus that we have got to get reacquainted with. I hate it when people read to me. I'm going to read to you. You ready? Culture Shift by David Henderson hard book, but a great book. He says it's a great temptation to make Christianity attractive to seekers by misrepresenting the faith as a relationship with Christ, through Christ, with a God who is really a divine vending machine in the sky. 
there to meet your every need. Unhappy, unattractive, unsuccessful, unmarried, unfulfilled, come to Christ and he'll give you everything you ask for. We forget God is not primarily in the business of meeting needs. You want a biblical view of God? That you have to start there. He is not primarily in the business of meeting needs. When we make him out to be, we squeeze him out of his rightful place at the center of our lives and we put ourselves in his place. God is in the business of being God. Christianity cannot be reduced to God meeting people's needs. And when we attempt to do so, we invariably distort part of the Christian message. God's agenda is to display his glory and to further his kingdom around the globe. It is to call humanity to bended knee, bowing before him in adoration and devotion and dependence and service. It is to invite men and women out of the hollow pursuit of living for themselves and into a life that is consumed by God. It is to make of his followers men and women of deep trust and character, the kind of Christ-like individuals with whom God is pleased to spend eternity with. Merely using need as our main basis for making sense of the Christian life automatically knocks us away from the way believers have understood the faith for centuries. Why? Because God no longer occupies center stage. Terms like self-love, self-expression, self-confidence, self-fulfillment, none of which grace the, the pages of Scripture, begin to dominate the church's conversation. Meanwhile, other self-help words straight from the Bible like self-surrender, self-sacrifice, self-denial, self-control, slip into disuse. Self, great big and smack dab in the middle, squeezes out all the notions of a holy God, a fallen self, an undeserved gift of grace in Christ Jesus, and a divine call on the whole of one's life. When that happens, we may be preaching, we may be sharing faith, but what we are communicating is not genuinely Christian. In Christianity, the one place the self cannot be is at the center. Jesus at the center of it all. Can you play that? Challenge, musical challenge. In Christianity, the one place the self cannot be is at the center. That is the rightful place of God alone. Jesus and God are not your vending machine. He comes to you and says, broken, messed up, separate from God, follow me. Follow me. Repent and believe and follow me. The vending machine God is not the offer that Jesus is making us in Mark. It's not the author of the gospel. It's not what we're talking about. This is not the offer of the scripture when it talks about walking with the Holy Spirit in power. It's not a vending machine God. It's authority, the, the authority of Christ to rule over our lives, to call us to follow him. It's the gospel. The good news is in the person of Jesus Christ to repent and turn away from my idols and myself, to believe that he is the one who has made it possible for me to have a relationship with God and to follow him. That's the offer of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. 
I'm gonna close with this. What would it look like? What would your life look like and feel like if you immediately and fully surrendered to the perfect king? Saying, I got questions. God has to answer my questions first. And Jesus comes to you and says, man, I got good news for you. (laughs) I'm the gospel. It's me. I'm the fulfillment of everything God's been doing. It's me. Repent. You're so arrogant. Aren't you glad that Jesus talks to us like this? Revealing needs we didn't even know we had. I know your laundry list. I got you, man. We'll get there. We'll just start with this. You're so arrogant and self-consumed. You need to get off center stage. Put me there. Follow me. Repent and believe and follow me. What would your life look like if you immediately and kind of completely, fully surrendered to that perfect king? What would your work life look like? What if you took your work and you surrendered it to the King Jesus? He said, I'm going to do this your way. What would your love life look like? What would your family life look like? Your financial life? What would your finances look like if you said, Jesus, I'm just going to do this this your way. I've put my wants and my needs at the middle of my checkbook for a long time. I'm going to take me out. Social life. What would it all look like? Bow your heads. Close your eyes. You have been lovingly, graciously,